Live from DevX Studios in Washington, D.C., this is Long Story Short, the global development news show. I'm Debbie Charles, DevX's news editor, in for Kate Midden this week. Late last month, a devastating dual disaster struck the Indonesian island of Sulawesi. Thousands were injured and tens of thousands required assistance following the 7.5 earth magnitude earthquake and six-meter-high waves that hit communities in Palu and Dongala from the resulting tsunami. The devastations proved very challenging for response and raised questions about the country's disaster preparedness. Today I'm joined by our Bangkok-based Asia correspondent Kelly Rogers, who's been following this story over the past few weeks. Hi, Kelly. Hi, Debbie. Happy to join you. Thanks for coming in. We'll get into the details of the story in a little bit, but I, I wanted to get a sense of the context. Um, you've been reporting about this, this the Asia-Pacific region for a while now, and uh, as we've all seen, it's a it's very disaster prone, and lots of countries have had kind of really bad natural disasters in the past few years, and even this last year. How would you compare this recent disaster in Indonesia? Thanks, Debbie. Yeah, so I think one of the things to note right off the bat is how complicated and sort of uniquely lethal this de- disaster is considered. Um, I think there was some early reporting that called it unexpected, you know, but I I don't think that's true at all, considering Indonesia's position in the ring of fire. Um, But one scientist did describe it. It was unexpected to pretty much have all of the worst possible factors of disaster occurring together. Um, And so a couple of points just on the features that made this so catastrophic. And one is that the, the massive quake was caused by a different kind of plate movement than usually causes really high-speed waves. So it was, it was a horizontal rather than vertical movement. And two, the, the impact of the tsunami waves are thought to have been heightened by the shape of the narrow bay that they barreled into. And the worst-hit city of Palu is sort of located in the mouth of that bay. And then three, the event also triggered this really horrifying phenomenon of liquefaction, which, to be honest, I was not familiar with until this, but I can assure you that there are Indonesian scientists and others who who were and who warned of this threat on Sulawesi for years prior to this, Um, but it causes the soft ground to liquefy during earthquakes. And so some of the photos you see of of the devastated areas are actually due to this liquefaction rather than the tsunami. So how you were saying that that you should have been able to have predicted this, like how could how could there have been a sense and was there a sense of what was about to happen? How can they predict it? Yeah, I mean, a couple of people I've spoken with have have made it clear to me that this dual disaster would have been hard to prepare for no matter what country we were talking about. So I do think that's important to remember. But equally important is, in this case especially, is that there was a breakdown in the early warning technology and in the ensuing chain of events that would have provided citizens on the island with, with more warning time. And, and it likely resulted in higher casualties. Um, and I think this is illustrated by the fact that there were still so many people driving along the coast um, or even at the beach walking around who were swept away when the tsunami waves hit. Um, so I, I think right now the death toll stands at, at more than 2,000. It's a really tragic disaster. Wow. And when, when you think about past disasters, like, um, I mean, the big tsunami in 2004, I would think countries like Indonesia that are earthquake prone would have learned from this. And um, if they had a system, what was the, what was the breakdown of, of these systems? 
Like what happened? How did, how did people, how were they still out on the beach? Yeah, exactly. And, and just backing up a minute. So Indonesia really got serious about disaster preparedness and has spent millions on it following that 2004 Indian Ocean tsunami that was so devastating for so many countries in the region. Um, so it really organized its government agencies. It established its national agency for disaster management. Um, and its tsunami early warning system was also completed uh, around 2008. And it's made up of several different things. There are these seismographic sensors, tidal buoys, and gauges. Um, and so the system isn't perfect, I don't think, even at the best of times. But it really failed to capture the right information in this case because some of the equipment wasn't placed properly. And some of it, um, like, for example, this technology that was in these open water buoys that record changes in sea level, um, is really important, obviously, to, to warn of a tsunami. It was actually vandalized or, or just completely stolen in 2012, and it wasn't updated or replaced. So anyway, the system ended up estimating waves that were a lot smaller than the 20-foot waves that ended up hitting the coast. Um, and then on top of this, there's been criticism of the lack of sirens to then warn residents of a tsunami threat. Um, and the ones that are there didn't go off. So it was really a combination, I think, of, of failures that led to this much devastation. Wow. And I mean, it's just amazing to think that something like this can be vandalized and, and just, uh, you know, is it the problem in the country of the system or is it just that, that they didn't realize it had been vandalized and hadn't been able to fix it? Yeah, I think it was a combination of the two. I was talking to someone from the Asia Disaster Preparedness Center who was actually Indonesian, and she she was really kind of honing in on this point of the vandalization because she said it represented the fact that you know the, the community just isn't really aware of the importance of what the system does. Um, and then on the other hand, you know, the government really didn't didn't step in to maintain or replace this equipment either. So it was sort of a failure on both counts. Right, exactly. And then, okay, so looking at your other, what you were reporting on, and you said, um, you know, the problem's twofold. There were some of these issues alerting residents and another element of messages being understood. I mean, it, was this a problem there? Was, had they been enough, had they been prepared enough? Had they taught, like, had the residents been aware of the potential for problem even? Yeah, I, I think this for me is the really standout point. There has been so much focus, and rightly so, after this disaster on the failed technology side of things. But in talking to a couple of experts um, at, at a couple of different institutions, the problem is bigger than that. And, and in Indonesia's case, it's not at all that the, the local science community or the National Meteorological Agency don't have a really good grasp of you know, the, the geology and seismology underneath the country that poses risks. But it's more of this gap between the information that they produce, like risk maps or, you know, information that shows hotspots um, and the people who could use that information to take action. So, for example, there were studies about the risks of liquefaction on the island, but those weren't used to make decisions about where to build or not build. Um, and the same goes for warning signals. You know, even if sirens are wailing along the beach in Palo, it's really little help unless the work has been done to translate that in the community's mind to, all right, this means there's a tsunami, I need to run inland or you know, find higher ground. 
did you get a sense on whether there had ever been training for the the residents on what the what the sirens might mean? Yeah, exactly. I was really curious about that, and it honestly it doesn't seem like there has been very widespread um, sort of information sharing on this. What, one thing is that UNDP conducted tsunami and quake drills with a local partner um, when they had a disaster risk reduction project in Palu. I think it was around two thousand nine. Um, but then in talking to several people on the ground now, uh, the Indonesia Red Cross in particular, um, I was asking, you know, is this something that, that residents in this community were, were receiving? Um, and they could point to some training and evacuation st- simulation for staff, like for Red Cross staff, uh, but that uh, wasn't widespread. And, and someone else on the ground told me that they, they didn't hear from any survivors that they'd had any sort of drills or simulations. Um, and honestly, in, in Palo, people didn't know what to do. And I think that's just a matter of needing heightened community awareness. Yeah. And hopefully hopefully they will now start training on that. Um, so just thinking about this disaster and, and thinking about the overall concept of disaster resilience preparedness, and, and you've covered other, other type disasters across the region, how would, you, how would this incident compare to others that you've covered? Yeah, interestingly, I I think I want to make one comparison to my experience reporting in Bangladesh. And and they're mainly facing the threat of cyclones rather than um, tsunami. But they're really well known for their cyclone preparedness program. And it leans heavily on citizen participation. So, you know, let's say the, the country's meteorological center detects a cyclone threat. That alert is then sent to any number of local radar stations. Um, and then transmitted via wireless to these identified community leaders who raise visible flags based on the severity of the threat. And, and so it's like, it's this whole chain of events and it's fairly simple. Um, but it's training to Kutupalong refugee camp in Bangladesh. And the focus was so much on making sure that the community knew what the flags meant and what to do when they saw them. Otherwise, you know, the exercise would be pretty futile. So I know it's maybe not a perfect comparison, but I think it illustrates this idea of community preparedness and of um, neighbor-to-neighbor interactions. And an expert from ADPC also pointed out to me that in recent earthquakes in Nepal and in Japan, you know, it was neighbors who were rescuing each other from under falling buildings. Um, so your neighbor is sort of your, your first responder in a lot of cases. Yeah, and, you know, fascinating to think that in Bangladesh they're thinking about the people in the refugee camps and those people are prepared, yet in Indonesia you don't even have, you know, you have people who are probably permanent residents and live there and they're not prepared. So it's definitely a difference in the government's way of handling these things. Yeah, exactly. And I think because there's so much focus on the tech side of things, the, the kind of simplicity of, of something like what's going on in Bangladesh gets lost. You know, I mean, of course, they have um, early warning tech, and that's what sort of sets off this chain of events. But in the end, you know, it's, it's a flagpole and a couple of red flags that, that everyone sort of knows what, what they mean and what to do when they see them. Um, so it's, it's pretty simple. Yeah, sometimes low tech is the easiest thing. Don't worry about the SMS <laughs> yeah. message that goes across. Yeah, wow. So, okay, looking into the response um, of the Indonesian government. So Indonesia was apparently initially reluctant to accept foreign aid, but after realizing how 
how devastating how devastated the the earthquake and tsunami were um president joko widodo agreed to assistance why was this and and do you think it had any effect on the overall response yeah you know i think this is common a country wants to draw on its own resources its own technical staff to respond to disaster and especially because indonesia considers itself you know, at this point, quite well-versed in disaster response. Um, and I think there was also a factor of pride um, just because the country hasn't declared a national disaster since the 2004 tsunami. Um, and this is considering that a nearly, I think it was a nearly 7.0 magnitude earthquake just struck Lombok um, in August. And, you know, even the reaction then was that we as Indonesia will, will take care of this. Um, but, I, you know, I think it draws ire from the international community who want to help the country, not only in the early response in terms of, you know, food, shelter, medical care to survivors, but in rebuilding. Um, And so I think there was relief in a sense when the president saw the scope of this disaster um, and how widespread it was and the number of victims and made the call to accept international aid. and still, Indonesia's disaster agency, I think, is limiting foreign involvement in the relief efforts. Mm-hmm. And in in your reporting, what did you get a sen- did you get a sense from some of the people who were responding or the groups that were responding to the disaster? Did you get um, what what were they most concerned about? What were some of the challenges they were facing, especially in the immediate response? Yeah, I, I was on the phone actually with a humanitarian aid worker on the ground a few days after. Um, the tsunami and, you know, our connection wasn't that good, but he was saying right now we're trying to figure out what to do with the bodies. Um, and, and that was, I think, one of the really grim immediate needs after something like this. Um, and of course, because of the destruction of roads, it was really hard to reach certain areas. So teams are grabbing all the supplies they can and just going on foot to try to reach as many people as they can. Um, and on top of it, there was there was a fuel shortage, which was limiting the, the transport of items even to more accessible areas. Um, so, of course, you know, immediate concerns were, were search and rescue. And then the ongoing needs of providing food, water, medical care, um, and shelter to survivors. And I think around 80,000 people um, or 75,000 people are displaced from their homes right now. So it's going to be a huge effort moving forward, too. And had, I mean, I assume some of these responders are pretty experienced at responding to disasters in the region. Is there something, is there anything that they mentioned that they had learned from past disasters in the area that could have affected their response to this one? I think international actors in this region or international responders in this region are probably overly familiar (laughs) with how tricky it is to get aid Um, quickly to an island, especially when the reality is that, you know, the airport is damaged and people are having to fly into a different airport and make, you know, sometimes a 15 to 20 hour journey then to Palu Um, and massive transport of of other relief materials by sea takes time to organize. So I think those are some of the sort of unfortunate realities. but one thing that, that stands out to me that I've heard in this response is is how absent local officials seem to have been. Um, and I know it can take hours to, to mobilize official agencies responsible 
um, for search and rescue and and other things after earthquake and tsunami hit. But it seems like um, the mayor of Palu, for example, who did survive the tsunami, hasn't been present at all in the aftermath. Um, and there, there also seems to be a fair amount of confusion around the role of the military um, versus, you know, local officials versus international actors. And I think that um, initial confusion just really hampers um, an aid effort. Oh, yeah. When you don't know who to coordinate with, that can make it really difficult. Um, so looking ahead, what do you see as the top priorities for Sulawesi? Um, you know, I think this is probably a really good lesson learned for countries throughout Asia Pacific. Um, like you said earlier, hopefully, honestly, all government officials are sort of making calls to check on their early warning systems, you know, make sure they're functioning. And make um, sure people understand what they're for. <laughs> right. I mean, I don't even think it's it's top priorities for Sulawesi necessarily. I think it's more prioritization for Indonesia as a whole. Um and I know that the government had plans to update its early warning system, and that was sort of stalled, you know, for very stalled in testing phase. Um, so definitely revisiting that detection system, I think, will be really important. Um, but but otherwise, I think prioritizing two things. One of them is the use of all of that great available risk mapping to make really smart decisions now about where and how to rebuild um, to, to mitigate risks. And then two, making community engagement in disaster preparedness a real priority. And whether that takes the form of, of simulations or identifying community leaders to alert their neighbors, you know, whatever it might be. Um, and then I guess one other point is, is just funding, committing to funding to do that. Uh, reports are showing that Indonesia's budget for disaster monitoring has has fallen in recent years, I think, and the the country's disaster response budget is something like 0.002%, I believe, of the state budget. Um, so there's, there's definitely room for improvement there. And um, at the same time, JICA, World Bank, USAID, Australia, um, they've all invested in various urban resilience and emergency preparedness in the country. Um, and the World Bank actually just announced that it would provide this um, loan of up to, I think, $1 billion for the government for relief and reconstruction. So I think it will be important to watch that and see what changes the country makes or what, res- like what resources it makes use of uh, to improve its systems moving forward. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, looking broad, further along, uh, more broadly, I guess, than just Indonesia, do you think this is going to have an impact on disaster preparedness um, in other countries? Or is there, like, I mean, are they going to pay attention to this? Or is it just another disaster that, you know, oh, well, that happened over there? Or do you think that this is getting momentum in other countries? Yeah, I mean, I hope it is. I think one of my questions lately has been, you know, what, what works? Like, what really does work the best in terms of preparedness? Is it is it simulations? You know, is it these neighbor-to-neighbor trainings? Is it these simple, you know, sort of like flag systems that, that don't rely on, um, you know, for example, this earthquake knocked out communication, um, knocked out all the power. So even if there was an SMS sent, let's say, um, to warn the community of a disaster happening, no one would have received it. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I think... I think 
I hope that, that countries now are, are really having conversations about what's working. Yeah, I hope so too. Well, thank you so much for giving us um, a little more insight into your reporting on this. And uh, hopefully the reporting will help people get more aware of the problem and, and uh, improve some disaster preparedness. Thanks so much, Debbie. Thank you. And now we'll do a quick news roundup in other global development news. The World Bank annual meetings took place in Indonesia last week in the wake of that earthquake and tsunami. The top stories of the week in Bali, which is not too far away from where Sulawesi is, included a focus on climate change and attempts from both the World Bank and the IFC to green their finance and get out of coal. The launch of the highly anticipated human capital index and the sustainability of China's lending. And another story, the U.S. House Committee on Foreign Affairs found that significant mistakes were made by all parties involved in USAID's largest ever contract. The investigation by the House Committee was triggered by a DevEx report that the $9.5 billion contract with Chemonix faced chronic problems. For more news and to keep up on our stories from DevEx, you can follow our Twitter feed at twitter.com slash devx or go to our Facebook page. Thanks very much for tuning in and we'll see you next week.